0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a research fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the Digital Public Square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Katie McCoy to talk about her new book, To Be a Woman the confusion over female identity, and how Christians can respond from BH Publishing. We discuss the rise of transgender ideology, the contours of the gender debate, and how Christians can respond in love to our neighbors by speaking uncompromising truth alongside uncompromising grace. Katie currently serves as the Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptist. She holds a PhD in Systematic Theology from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where she previously served on faculty. She teaches and writes on the intersection of theology, cultural, and women's issues. She's also the co-author of a forthcoming volume on the Doctrine of Humanity as part of the Theology for the People of God series with B&H Academic. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. It's been a real joy over the last few years to get to know you, to follow a lot of your work, and I'm really excited about this new book, To Be a Woman, The Confusion Over Female Identity and How Christians Can Respond, that just recently came out from B&H Publishing, Before we dive into the book, though, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and your background. Obviously, you have a PhD in systematic theology. You've studied these issues and thought about them for a while. So tell us a little bit about your story and kind of journey into ministry.
0: Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. So my background is in theological studies. And so I um, focused a lot of my research on that intersection of theology and women's issues, my Old Testament, uh, my dissertation is on Old Testament laws about women and how women were treated in Israelite culture and demonstrating these patterns of uh, protection and justice for the most vulnerable in society through the law. It's really fascinating. I never get tired of talking about it. But along with that, talking a lot about historical movements related to women, specifically feminism, first, second, and third wave. And as part of teaching that, and especially a class on feminism and church and culture, I would introduce my students to these concepts about transgender issues. And at the time, these were fringe stories. I think the, the biggest one at the time was uh, a story about um, a female boxer competing against a male, biologically male boxer who uh, identified as female. And it, it described just how devastating her injuries were. And, uh, it was this fringe story. Like, can you believe that in the name of gender identity or gender equality, quote unquote, you have people paying to watch a biological man beat a biological woman? This is, this is insanity and it was something that at the time we we didn't really hear too much about. There were some theologians talking about it as saying, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years this is going to be a big issue in our culture, but we weren't seeing much. Then all of a sudden it seemed overnight to explode. And it was everywhere in media, it was everywhere in culture, it was in different entertainment industries and it just became more and more mainstream. And within about a decade what was on the fringe became very central in public consciousness. And so it was It was a, a huge shift, seemingly overnight, but the truth is we'd been getting here for
1: quite a while. Yeah, know. one of the things that I always tell my students is that um, things don't happen in a vacuum. I think often it's easy for us to look back and have like a really simplistic narrative or to say, oh, okay, well, this just happened overnight type of thing. But you wisely say throughout this work, and we've we've talked about this a long time on the podcast, about how these ideas build over time throughout, especially philosophical history. A lot of the ideas in the 18th, 19th, 20th century are now starting to work their way into kind of the popular consciousness and stuff. The question of what is a woman, though, it seems almost like a silly question. And I think many of us, especially over the last few years when we heard that, we were like, I can't believe... People can't answer this question. Then you actually ask people, even people who believe the Bible, believe that God created us male and female in His very image, sometimes struggle to identify or even define that. Whether we define it based on biological reality, psychological realities, different things. It's really interesting to me that on one hand, it's kind of a silly question. On the other, I'm also really intrigued by it. It was something that, and we'll talk about this later, I had commissioned you and Dr. Greg Allison from Southern Samaria to write corresponding articles he wrote on what is a man, and you wrote on what is a woman. And it was really fascinating to me because there's some really interesting questions to be asked, even if we start from the presupposition, obviously, that God created us male and female. So why this book and why now?
0: In part because of all the confusion that you just noted. And some of it is the the simple definition that we had been working from is so rejected by our culture today and so the simple concept of a woman is a biological human female an adult human female is something that is not just rejected but now called bigoted or oppressive or you are uh, trying to continue the cis heteronormative patriarchy of the day and it's it's uh, seen through more of these political, lenses, these political eyes. Well, now, how do we give a cogent and clear answer for that? So this this book really came out of seeing all of that confusion, how it has been affecting people in the church. 80% of the LGBTQ community comes from a religious or Christian background. And that means they are in our spheres. These are, these are people coming from our youth groups—they're coming from our Christian colleges and church camps—and what are we missing in our theological discourse that is causing them to be so swept up by these ideas that gender is purely a psychological concept? And so, you—you you mentioned that biology, the psychology, and uh, so much of it is this overflow of these philosophical ideas that we have been influenced by. From the time we were young, if you're a millennial, the time that you were young, and we didn't realize just how much we were taking in different ideas that were forming our sense of self and what it means to be human. And so uh, a lot of this book just came out of that, seeing that there were uh, mothers and ministers looking around going, The world has seemingly changed overnight. What do I do? We are just trying to keep up with it. We're trying to get our arms around it. Um, you have kids that come from solid Christian homes. They get on TikTok or Reddit or YouTube. And within a few weeks, they say that they're transgender. Um, one story I heard a, a young girl said she was trans and an atheist. And it totally shocked her parents because they thought, where in the world has this come from? And so getting uh, over that bridge from shock to awareness to understanding, to responding it is much of what I help, hope this book achieves, is it's helping people take a look at their culture, everything that's happening around them, and shift more quickly to adapt, to understand, here's the world that we're living in. Now, what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? How do we be faithful disciples in a world that is so philosophically, ideologically, culturally anti Christian, anti what the Bible says about who we are as image bearers of God.
1: One thing I really like about this book is I think you in many ways accomplish those goals. I think this is a good introduction to a lot of these ideas and you define a lot of terms for us, which I think are helpful. And then you address some kind of perennial questions that in many ways plague, even as a dad of two young kids, questions either that they ask or that their friends are asking or that we see kind of a popular media that I know they will be asking. This is, I think, a really, really helpful introduction to a lot of those ideas. And we'll kind of cover some of that. But one of the concepts that gets thrown out a lot today is this idea of gender identity. And then in the book, you also kind of define a female identity and have a very specific definition. I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit about that, because this concept of identity and gender identity specifically are often terms that are thrown out and kind of in public consciousness Most of the time, it feels like people don't really know what they're saying or what they're actually meaning when they utilize a term like that. But I really love the way that you kind of frame this concept of female identity. So I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack both of those terms for us.
0: Yeah, so gender identity is a relatively new term in our common parlance in our cultural vernacular and it essentially means that how you understand yourself to be as a man woman or some combination thereof is your gender identity and culturally it is understood that your gender identity is a completely distinct and separate divisible concept from your biology and one of the things that we're confronting is That very idea is what is the relationship of your gender to your biology? In other words, your gender to your biological sex. Everything that we see in scripture, especially in the creation account, tells us that our body indicates our gender. It is something that is a distinct aspect of who we are, but it's not a divisible aspect of who we are. The reason it's distinct, and we know this from just reading our Bibles and how it tells us that we have a body, we have a soul, we have a mind, we have a conscience, we have a heart, we have a spirit. All of these things are words that scripture uses to describe a human being or the nature or composition of humanity. But what we don't see in the Bible is that those things are divided, that the material and immaterial self, while distinct, is not divisible. In fact, the only time that we see it divided is in what we call theologically the intermediate state. Now I'm getting kind of down in the weeds here, but what it means is that between the time of our death, if the Lord does not come back before we physically die, we are separated from From our spirit our spiritual self is separated from our physical self we are disembodied souls but even though that is an aspect of what's called the intermediate state that is incomplete because the complete version of our humanity we know from revelation is a resurrected body when our souls are reunited To our bodies. In other words, the future of humanity is fully embodied. We cannot separate the body from the self. And that's exactly what our culture says we can do. Culture says your physical self has no bearing on who you truly are. And so talking about this difference between gender identity and female identity, it's very important because gender identity would say your body has no meaning. Your body has no significance. Female identity reverses that and says, because you are female, that is defining your gender identity for you. Alyssa Childers, had this great phrase she told her children she said your body determines your gender and as simple as that is it's so powerful because what that means is you can have a person with certain personality attributes certain interests or affinities or activities or hobbies they don't have to fit a stereotype their body defines and determines their gender So really, if we were going to put some kind of big umbrella phrase over it, it's that God not only created our bodies to be good, he created them to be a guide. They tell us who we are. They tell us not only in whose image we are made, which is what all of creation displays, the glory and reality of God. But they actually tell us who we are, not only our identity, but then how we are in response to that identity to relate to other
1: people. Man, I feel like we could just kind of end the podcast right there. That was so good and so helpful. But there's so much to unpack here. And this one of the things that I like about this book is it's kind of a jumping off point. Uh, there's so much more depth and nuance that we can get into as we start to ask some of these really, really important questions. And as kind of, as I've mentioned earlier, one of the things I always remind my students is to reject simplistic narratives and things don't happen in a vacuum. And they hear me say this over and over and over again. And even though I say that, I'm also going to ask you a question that may tend to be more simplistic in some sense because we have a few minutes to talk about it, but. As we've talked about, things don't happen in a vacuum, meaning these ideas didn't happen overnight. I remember sitting in a PhD seminar one time and a professor said, So when did the kind of sexual revolution start? Or when did all of this start? And a lot of folks will say, Oh, well, the 1960s, that's when it all started. And then somebody, Oh, actually, maybe it was a little bit before that. Oh, maybe it was a little bit before that. And then, you know, that one guy in the class will be like, Well, Genesis 3 in the fall. And you're like, Yeah, that's true too. But as you kind of frame up kind of how we got to where we are, How would you kind of frame that story in some sense of understanding the separation between this external reality and something that's more self-defined in terms of identity, in terms of truth and reality? How did we get to this place? Because obviously the 1960s, yes, maybe some of this started with the sexual revolution. Maybe in the 2000s, we see kind of the transgender revolution take place. But again, the stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. So how did we get here?
0: hmm So we can't underestimate the impact of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. They talk about this in the book that it didn't just change what was considered acceptable. It got rid of whole concepts of acceptable altogether. And following the sexual revolution, the only thing that matters now in our sexual behavior is consent. When you really take away everything, if the, if the body does not have any significance over how we are to live, the only thing that matters is consent or individual will. We arrived at the sexual revolution as a product of a lot of different ideas, including but not limited to the effects of romanticism. Romanticism is one of the dominant cultural ideas in the West, in Western culture. If you've not, and I hope you will read the work of uh, Dr. Carl Truman, he wrote that book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and then the kind of distilled version of that is Strange New World itself is a uh, a dense book, a dense read, but it's a fantastic introduction to the ideas that have created the cultural moment that we're in. Romanticism essentially said that society is trying to fit you into a mold. And that mold is a hypocritical version of yourself. In fact, it gives this sense of it's an inauthentic version of yourself and that the best thing that you can do is be the authentic version of yourself. If that's ringing some bells, it should. We just came off of Pride Month a few weeks ago, and you heard people talking about supporting individuals being their true authentic self. Well, how do we arrive at this true authentic self? It is exclusively our individual emotions. So the key to an authentic and truly fulfilled life is to separate yourself from all external influences and to tune into your own emotions because your own emotions are your most faithful guide. And from this sense, this romanticism and the philosophy that it it tells us about what it is to be a happy whole human being, we also can see evidence of that in something called expressive individualism. Now, if you are a Western individual. You are an individualist. We do not live in a collectivist society. We don't live in an honor-shame culture. We are individuals. Now, if you're an American, you're like a super individual. You do not look to the past to define the future. You are not confined to the traditions of your forefathers and foremothers. In fact, it is a virtue to chart your own course, to define what came before you. But expressive individualism takes this a step further it says that all of reality is defined and determined by your individual psychological emotional self. And as a result, anything that would get in the way of your emotional psychological self, anything that would defy that is oppressive and trying to squeeze you into an inauthentic version of yourself. And that, of course, is not even a life worth living. And so if your highest good is to be your authentic self, then you have to get rid of every other influence that could be trying to conform you to someone that you're not. Be that influence, religion, parents, society, education, or even our own external bodies. So Much of what we're seeing is the overflow of answering these deep questions of what does it mean to be a happy, whole, fulfilled human being? And this is exactly what we see in so many people trying to find that in a trans identity or a declared preferred gender identity. Really get down to what they're looking for. Most of them are looking for a sense of wholeness integrity, peace, fulfillment, and being their, their true authentic self. Now that actually for the believer, for the Christian, the disciple of Christ, this is kind of like really good news because that's our turf. These are the answers that our worldview has. This is what the way of Jesus answers for us. And what Jesus tells us, it is not through self-fulfillment, self-gratification, even self-understanding. That we find fulfillment. It's that our identity is something that must be identity, that must be anchored in something outside of ourselves. In fact, there is nothing big enough within ourselves that we can hang the weight of our identity on. That must be done outside of ourselves. And it is the life of self-sacrifice, the life of self-giving, anchored in our identity and oneness with the Lord Jesus, that we find that fulfillment. So if we were going to boil it all down, we could say this, we will not understand the meaning of our gender and find peace within ourselves until we understand that we are created in the image of a creator God, and we are at peace with Him through Christ.
1: It's fascinating to me, one of the threads that kind of runs parallel to this story is even the rise and triumph, to use Truman's term there, of technology. It's something that I've been kind of focusing on and thinking about for many years, obviously. We have this podcast, The Digital Public Square, so much of my writing has been in that. But it's really interesting to note the way that technology has allowed us the opportunity to do things that once weren't possible. One of the things we talk about here a lot on the podcast is how technology is shaping and forming us as people, including our view of God, our view of ourselves, which is especially true and helpful in this conversation, and the way we think about the world around us. Does it have an external kind of fixed reality, fixed meaning, or is it something that we can more self-create? You write about this a little bit in the book about the rise of biotechnologies, therapeutic methods, hormonal, surgical treatments, and other technologies that allowed and kind of contributed to this idea and embrace of transgender ideology. I wanted to see if you could unpack that about how these powerful tools gave us the ability or even kind of gave us the belief in some sense that we could alter these fixed realities, in, including our biological gender.
0: Mm-hmm. And Jason, you've been writing in this space before it was a thing. Like you were talking about AI before before it was national news. And now it's, it's something that we're all trying to catch up to. Well, AI and then all of these uh, gender therapies, they have evolved together. So much of what we're seeing today is just the overflow of terms and technology that has evolved or caught up to human emotion, the idea that one would want to be separate from their body, that one's sense of gender did not harmonize or align with one's body is actually nothing new. This has been around for centuries. In fact, um, one fascinating case I saw was a Roman emperor who reportedly was going to offer a fortune to the doctor that could make him a woman, that could give him female genitalia. In fact, instead of being called dominus, he wanted to be called domina. In other words, he had preferred pronouns. We could put that in today's parlance. He had preferred pronouns. So this impulse that as a result of the fallen world that we're living in, that we feel out of alignment with our biological sex, that is nothing new. What is new is some of the ideas that we've talked about that have produced this as a prevailing cultural idea and the terms and technology that have uh, evolved with it. So today now, women can go to Planned Parenthood and get testosterone shots, get foreign testosterone injected, um, and that will change some of their secondary sex characteristics as well as their emotional Response with testosterone and the flood of foreign testosterone comes that surge of confidence and uh, aggression, things that uh, God created testosterone to give males that uh, women are not built to have to uh, ingest and manage and synthesize. And they can't, they can't synthesize. It's having some horrific effects. Along with that, We have the surgical procedures that essentially it is the amputation of healthy organs, otherwise healthy organs, and the prosthetic implanting of organs that simulate or have the appearance of genitalia of the opposite sex. Now, the reason it's important to talk about it in terms of simulation or appearance of is those organs cannot fulfill their reproductive function. And here we go back to the biological grounding of female or male identity. Ryan Anderson, in his book, When Harry Became Sally, made this excellent point, said that you can have a prosthetic organ, but that organ cannot be connected to the overall biology to fulfill its reproductive function. Now, as soon as, as, soon as we start talking about reproductive Function and fulfilling that, Jason, people start saying, Oh, so you're saying we need to have children in order to be fully male or female? Not at all. I am 38. I don't have biological children. I am no less a woman. And Abigail Favale is a a wonderful philosopher. She defined female identity this way. She said, female identity is a person, a human, a, a human being whose body is organized around the potential of gestating new life, that's so very helpful because understanding female identity in terms of some type of characteristic that we all share, well, that's impossible to find. You will always find someone who is female, is a woman, even though they may not have a particular characteristic, whether that be appearance or temperament or ability. But every female human being has a body that is organized around the potential of gestating new life. That is what it means to be female. And then conversely, a male is someone who has the potential to sire or create new life or to give genetic material. And so when we define female and male identity in those terms, it takes it away from the psychological self and it anchors it in biology. And what we also see from that is it is impossible, no matter how much technology can evolve, that a person can change their biological sex. A person can actually become someone of the opposite gender. One thing that we should be fully prepared for is the possibility of a womb transplant and the creation of a synthetic womb in which a biological male could theoretically conceivably carry a child. Now, there are so many other things that would have to be technologically and and medically thought through. For instance, if you can implant a uterus, can you have a birth canal? Can you have a vaginal opening by which the the baby can emerge? Or are you looking at a C-section? But here's what technology cannot reach muscle fiber differences, the differences between male and female are down to the muscle fibers. Males have more of what's called fast twitch muscle fibers. Females have more slow twitch muscle fibers. As a result, females cannot have the same burst of energy. They can't have a a huge surge of energy and uh, lift something really heavy um, at once. Uh, Couple that with comparative differences in upper body strength and lower body strength and and females don't have as much physical strength. What it also means is that a female is not able necessarily to pull a car by a rope, but she can sustain contractions for 12 to 18 hours without quitting. Why? Because her muscles are built for it. So even if Even if there can be a womb transplant, even if there can be the synthetic recreation of the female biological reproductive organs, that male still does not have, from his muscle fibers at the cellular level, does not have what he would need to be considered female. Maleness and femaleness is irreducibly complex. The best that our technology can do is manufacture synthetic representations, but those synthetic representations can never fulfill their biological function. And and really, Jason, when when we look at all of this from a spiritual perspective, this is with advanced technology, everything that we saw in the Tower of Babel, is it not... We want to ascend to the place of the creator. We want to be the ones who can define the limits of our existence. We want to be the ones who can determine our boundaries. So as advanced as it seems, it really is a very old, old idea.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you framed it that way, because one of the things I always try to remind students and even folks on this podcast listeners to the podcast is, I I always bristle when people will call humanity co-creators. I really don't like that language. I haven't liked it for a very long time. And one of the reasons is it it insinuates some kind of like co-equal nature with God. And when we talk about how God creates, we may quote create, but I think we're more making. We're not creating in the same sense that God creates. Now, I know this is a semantic difference here. But I try to point that out of the difference between God as an infinite God and us as finite beings, that God, there's that creator-creature distinction that I think is vitally important. And even in this, in terms of technological development, you think of we're able to make things, but you, you're kind of in that idea that we mimic or imitate or it's synthetic, it's not real, it's manufactured in some sense. And I think that kind of speaks to, in some ways, the differences between the way we create and the way God creates, is that He creates in a very fundamentally different way. To drill down just a little bit, and I know this is a question that you and Dr. Allison kind of wrestled with, even in those posts that we had uh, commissioned about a year or two ago, I guess, those essays were really helpful because one of the questions that had kind of plagued me, not in the sense that I had this kind of like existential kind of crisis by any means, but I was just really fascinated by is does our maleness and our femaleness transcend not less than but is it more than just biological differences and one of the questions in how this ties in is um, listeners well know that kind of one of my interest areas is theological anthropology what does it mean to be human i think that is a central question to basically every ethical and social and political question we ask today and is especially prevalent in this particular conversation So I wanted to ask you that. You've spoken a lot of the biological differences or the potentiality of childbearing for female identity. Is there more to male identity and female identity than the biological differences? Not less than those, but is there something more or deeper that goes into our fundamental identity as male or female is created in God's image?
0: Right. So, uh, what we see in Genesis, and I think this kind of gives the bridge to the answer, is Genesis 1 gives us the uh, understanding of humanity in biological or sex based terms. And in fact, the Hebrew words used are uh, the Hebrew words for male and female. You could use the same words for a different type of living animal, male. Female. It's a male one, it's a female one. And what we see from Genesis one is that there are two types of humanity. And like other created animals or mammals, they they are sexually reproducing. And God tells them at the very end, fill the earth, populate it. What we see in Genesis two, in the retelling of the creation story, is a relational significance of those differences. And this is where humanity is unlike. Every other of God's creation. In Genesis 2, we even have God's personal or relational name. He's not Elohim, he's Yahweh. And in Genesis 2, we have the words for man and woman. So it's no longer male or female, it's man and woman. And that that set of terms is Ish and Isha. Now, if you studied Genesis, you you understand how we talk about these things in terms of the significance of man and woman and Perhaps gender roles. I think even more fundamentally than that, though, we have the connection between biological sex and relational gender identity, if we want to put it in those cultural terms. So the way that Genesis 2 illuminates the significance of maleness and femaleness is it's telling us how they relate to each other. And what we see is that the uh, one human being understands themselves by the correlation and contrast of the other. In other words, it is impossible to fully image God as he intends in isolation, in totally self-expression. We need relationships. We were designed for those relationships. Now, the norm, of course, is marriage, but because of the New Testament, because of the new covenant that we're in now, you don't, uh, well, first of all, we don't have to be married to be complete image bearers. We are individually God's image bearers, but the relationship, the primary relationship that God created human beings to have was the oneness between male and female in marriage. And the significance of that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about, Is that human beings have this analogy of relationship, that they are imaging God in relationship in a way that they don't individually. That's vital for us to understand how the Christian worldview so contrasts the cultural uh, ideas that we're living in today. Culturally, we are told that who you are is not only a matter of self expression, but that you can express your true self completely in isolation completely disconnected from relationship. And what Christianity teaches us, what the way of Jesus teaches us, is that we were never designed to fulfill our purpose by being within ourselves alone. It is always in relationship. And that relationship of reproducing human beings that we see in Genesis, well, what do we see now in our spiritual identities as well? We are called to make disciples. God is the one, just as with human creation, who actually does the creating, but he does it through human beings. He does it in human beings physiologically, like we see in Genesis 1 and 2, and then he does it through us spiritually, like we see in the Great Commission, that we go and make disciples. So All throughout scripture, we see that part of God's design for humanity is to partner with Him in bringing forward new life. He's the one who is the Lord and life giver, and He does that through us. So all of these differences between gender, between biological male and female, they are pointing us to a relational reality that transcends us is bigger than us. And it reminds us that we are the recipients of a created identity designed to display, reflect, and signify our creator, not ourselves. This is the crux of what I think people are looking for through the deception of culture's use of gender. They are looking for this sense of something bigger, within themselves. They instinctively want to anchor their identity in something that is greater than who they even are. And they're looking for it internally, as opposed to outside of themselves in the one in whose image they were made and the one who they were created to know.
1: Yeah, there's just so much to unpack there. And I I really love the way you frame that up. And start to think through that and kind of that 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 longing that we all have. I think that's a really important thing. It actually it reminds me of uh, the classic work of Missiology by J.H. Bob, Inc. We had Dan Strange on the podcast not too long ago, uh, who wrote a new introduction to that classic volume. He talks about that longing for God. Strange will talk about like a magnetic point, something that's drawing us towards that. We all have a sense of theology, we all have a sense of worship, we wanting to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's rooted right into our very nature. And we see various expressions of that, especially today. And one of the things that I I love about the way you write and the way that you approach this conversation is that you're uncompromising on the truth. But in the same respect, you're also uncompromising on the grace. And one of the things that really frustrates me in these conversations, specifically around gender and sexuality, but really kind of cultural engagement in general, is that often we go into one of the two camps and act as if they're somehow diametrically opposed to one another. That somehow, if we're going to be full of grace, we kind of have to compromise some truth. Or if we're really going to be full of truth and speak truth unadulterated adulterated truth, we may have to compromise grace sometimes. But I think the way you even frame this up is you talk throughout the book about seeing individuals, seeing the struggles they have, the longings they have, but at the same time kind of pushing back against this larger kind of cultural ideology that are taking place. Why is that so important? not only in this conversation in particular, but really broadly to see that we can be full of truth and grace, not seeing them as opposed to one another or somehow in conflict.
0: I think the mission and ministry of Jesus gives us this in just a snapshot that He had the right anger against everything that was destructive to us as His image bearers. So if it is something that was separating us from God, if it was a deception, if it was something that was destroying who we were, he was uh, vehemently against it. Just like a good doctor hates cancer, they hate cancer, they hate disease in an effort to save the patient. And so we have to keep that right perspective. And really, the, miss- the mission and ministry of Jesus gives this to us. And the, the way I try to frame it is Satan hates God. So Satan hates God's image bearers, and he will stop at nothing to convince them that defying their creator and harming themselves is the path to freedom. And so when we are confronting and contradicting these ideas, it isn't just so that we can regain a social sense of having the prevailing cultural idea of humanity, it's so that we will remove the barriers. We will remove the things that are destroying people uh, whom God created in His image and whom God created to know Him. And we will take those things away so that people are no longer obscured and deceived about who they are, where they find meaning, and where they find peace. And when we understand this in terms of People, so many people, especially young people, Gen Z, especially, are searching for peace. You know, there, there's no there's no coincidence here that Gen Z is the first generation to grow up in a post-Christian culture where Christianity is not the dominant cultural idea. They are the generation fraught with gender confusion. They are also the generation in which mental health crises are epidemic, of anxiety, of depression. It's, it's a national emergency. We should be treating it as such. And you have now our government officials talking about the role of social media on young people and, and how so many young people have anxiety and depression. These things are all linked. These things are all linked. If you can imagine uh, for a young person being told that your identity, your sense of self is the most grounding, true, authentic thing about you, and that you only find it through your feelings. Well, if you have changeable feelings, what does this mean about your identity? You are not anchoring it in anything. That brings so much anxiety. The anxiety of having to pick and choose who you truly are is something that we were not created to have to bear. And so when we see through these spiritual lenses, how these ideas are affecting people. And then we also recognize that at the core of it, like everything else is a spiritual issue. There is a spiritual battle going on for the hearts and souls and minds of the next generation. We are able to both look at an individual who is struggling and have compassion, and then also look at the ideas, look at the initiatives that are aiding and abetting that confusion and respond to it with confrontation. And we owe both to the next generation. We cannot slack on either.
1: Yeah, this book is, there's so much more that I wanted to talk about. I even planned to talk about in this conversation, but kind of really uh, loving the way that kind of things framed up in the way that we're ending the conversation. There's so much more to unpack here. I mean, you address things like pronoun usage. I know that's a big question that people have uh, speaking and kind of discipling the next generation, especially children who may be asking certain questions, even innocent questions that they kind of hear throughout society, entertainment, even in their schools. Um, there's so much here, and I do highly recommend To Be a Woman, the confusion over female identity and how Christians can respond. Um, one of the ways we always like to serve listeners as well as the wider church is can we end on providing some additional resources, things that people, if they want to dig a little bit deeper on some of these ideas. You do have a list at the end of the book of some recommended resources, but based on our conversation, what would you recommend? Can If folks want to take a little bit of a next step, whether it's in anthropology or in these sexuality and gender issues, What kind of uh, writings or research would you encourage folks to check out?
0: Yeah, so if you're looking for some, some practical help of what do we do on things like bathrooms at our church or camp, summer camp? Two books that address that are Preston Sprinkles, Embodied, and Andrew Walker's God in the Transgender Debate. So I would recommend those uh, in part because of space and in part because it's just not my wheelhouse. I, I don't address those issues, but I point readers to, to those on those questions. Um, if you're looking for some broader ideas, there are two that come to mind. Uh, Ryan Anderson's When Harry Became Sally is looking at this issue from a cohesive well researched, even philosophical perspective. And then um, this is a this is a book that does not come from a, a perspective of faith, but Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage is excellent, heavily researched, and um, it draws some straight correlations between ideas that have been proliferated in our society and how it's affecting young girls, especially. So I would really recommend those.
1: Well, for listener's sake, we'll make sure to include a link to all of those uh, in the show notes, as well as a cop- uh, link to To Be a Woman by Katie McCoy. Uh, we'll also include some of the, the podcast and the resources that we mentioned throughout the conversation as well. But Katie, I want to thank you so much. One, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And I really love uh, the work that you've been doing. And I'm just really grateful to call you a friend.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. Very, very thankful for your friendship and ministry as well.
1: Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. McCoy and learn more about her new book, To Be a Woman, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.